And it's Paul journeying towards Jerusalem, and uh, he's headed into the lion's den is what he's doing. He's wanting to go to his people one more time, and you'll understand that in just a moment. Acts chapter 20 and verse 16, uh, from last week, it says, For Paul, Acts 20 verse 16, Paul had determined to sail by Ephesus because he would not spend the time in Asia. He knew if he landed, he actually stopped at a port about 80 miles away from Ephesus. He knew if he went into Ephesus, he'd be mobbed by people and crowds, and he'd be diverted. He'd end up going all over what we call modern Turkey. And so he's got to get to Jerusalem. And he says he would not spend the time in Asia, for he hasted, if it were possible for him, to be at Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. So Paul has a schedule that he's trying to keep. He always had a plan. He always was preparing to go to the next stage. He didn't know how it would happen. He just knew God laid the direction on his heart, and he's just going to go, and God seemed to always open the doors and get him there. He's just finished speaking to a, a, a load of pastors and elders of the churches throughout Ephesus. This huge city had thousands and thousands of believers now. And he warned them about wolves circling the flock as he was leaving, and even um, evil men, perverted men, who would rise up among even those pastors who would destroy the flock. And he warned them, he says, stay faithful to the Bible. Stay walking with God. And he poured out his heart, and um, uh, he um, wants to be Jerusalem by Pentecost. Now, Pentecost, Penta 50, Pentecost means 50 days after Passover. And a lot of people want to make a journey to Jerusalem in their lifetime. I'm sure a lot of people, you hear of these tours that take people to Jerusalem. It's still a big place people want to go to because of the history and because of the religion and stuff. But Paul didn't want to go there for a religious pilgrimage or something like that. Paul is burdened about his people, and he wants to turn his zealous people's hearts towards Jesus as their Messiah. Now, Peter, when he had preached on the day of Pentecost, you remember what happened? 3,000 hard-headed Jews got saved, baptized, joined the church. A couple of uh, days later, 5,000 got saved. Peter was just having the time of his life. Paul's in his heart of hearts saying, I want to try. I want to go there now. So he wants to be in Jerusalem by Pentecost. And so he gets on a boat here, and he heads towards Jerusalem. So let's pick up in chapter 21, where we left off last week. Chapter 21 and verse 1, and Paul starts his journey towards Jerusalem. Verse 1, and uh, look what it says, And it came to pass that after we had gotten from them, he's left all those pastors and elders there, and had launched, we came with a straight course under Coos. That's, if we were in Scotland, they'd think that was a cow, because that's how they pronounce cow in Scotland. You ever hear that? The Scottish say, did you see the coos? <laughs> what they mean are these hairy beasts that are amazing to look at. But anyway, coos was an island there, and the day following, they found it went to another, <coughs> passed by another island called Rhodes, and from thence unto Patara. So they leave Miletus, and coos um, uh, is a unique place. That's the birthplace of a guy named Hippocrates. Did you ever hear of they called the Hippocratic Oath? All right, that's where this guy was born, all right? So it was kind of famous. But they passed on by. They weren't doing a history tour. They then went to Rhodes, and as they passed by Rhodes, you know what they saw? I'm going to show you. This is the trek they're going on. 
Uh, they're at Miletus, and they're headed towards Tyre and then straight down to Jerusalem, okay? But as they're going, they pass by. On the left-hand side is a huge 30 meters tall uh, statue to Apollo. And I want you to give you an idea of the size. That's the size of the Statue of Liberty in America. Look how similar they are, okay, by the way. But it, this was the greeting when you came to the roads, to the island of Rhodes. It was to let you know this was... This was Apollo's uh, islands. Was, he was defending it, stuff like this. And they just passed on by. You know, it's funny. Forget about the Statue of Liberty for a minute, but that statue, 30 meters tall, is now dust. It's one of the, it was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, and it's now in crumbled in stone. It doesn't still around. I'm glad our God's not stone. I'm glad our God is alive. Okay? Um, so they left Miletus, <clears throat> and they, now we come to verse 2, and they come to a place called Tyre. Um, and finding a ship sailing over unto Phoenicia, we went aboard, and they set forth. So there's kind of like changing planes. They get to London, and they change planes for the next destination. We went aboard, and they set forth. And now when we had discovered Cyprus, we left it on the left hand and sailed into Syria. And they landed at Tyre, for there was a ship. For there, the ship was to unladen her burden. So they got on the ship that was going to go to Tyre. And verse 4, and finding what? They found some disciples. We tarried there seven days. Paul's hurrying to get to Jerusalem, but he finds some believers, and what does he do? He stops in like our brother Lee here. He says, let's spend some time with the brethren. Now, I couldn't convince him to stay seven days with us, but if you were really spiritual, you know, you do that for your wife. You know that. <clears throat> but he just sits back and he says, I need to be with the brethren. Do you ever feel like that? Do you ever come to Friday and Saturday going, I can't wait for Sunday? I hope you do, because that's how Paul lived. If He's in a rush, but he finds some brethren. He says, let's just stay a while. Let's just fellowship. Because just like back then, it's kind of few and far between, between you meet another Christian. This is priceless what we do on a Sunday, folks. Jesus died so that we have this time as a church. So he spends some time, and he gets encouraged. But verse 4, let's keep going. He gets a warning. Finding disciples, we tarried there seven days, who those disciples said to Paul through the Spirit that he should not go up to Jerusalem. Now, whoa, wait a minute. There's a spiritual um, explosion in these people. They're like, Paul, don't go. I don't know why, but I, I got to tell you, don't do it. They're, they're, they're concerned about it. Now, Paul knows what he's going into. Go back to chapter 20 in verse 22. 20:22. Now behold, I go bound in the spirit. Now it's his spirit, okay, but he's committed unto Jerusalem, not knowing the things that shall befall me there. Now, he's saying, I don't know what's going to happen, but he kind of does. Look at the next verse. <laughs> he says, uh, say, we'd say, accept that. The Holy Ghost witnesses in every city I go into. There's a witness to me saying that bonds and afflictions are going to abide me, going to stick with me. They're going to, they're going to hold me, the bonds and afflictions. So Paul, he knows the danger that's ahead. As a matter of fact, go to chapter 22 and verse 17, 22, 17. He's known, he's known the danger of going to Jerusalem as a Christian. He knows it from the time he got saved, and he'll say it in chapter 22, verse 17. It came to pass, Paul is going through his 
his testimony, he says, It came to pass that when I was come again to Jerusalem, even while I prayed in the temple, I was in a trance, and I saw him, Jesus, saying unto me, Make haste, get thee quickly out of Jerusalem. The Lord called him out of it. Now, where was Paul called? To the Gentiles, to the Greeks, to the Galatians, to the Ephesians, to the Thessalonians, to the Macedonians. And so Paul's in the temple, and Jesus says, Get out of Jerusalem, for they will not receive thy testimony concerning me. Now, Paul, as we all do, kind of argues with the Lord. And he says, verse 19, and I said, Paul said, Lord, they know that I imprisoned and beat in every synagogue them that believed on me. Now, watch it. What he's saying is, they know I was, I was like them. I'm the best person to give them the gospel. They, I understand them. I used to be on their side. And that's, that's a logical reasoning, isn't it? But verse 20, um, uh, and when the blood of thy martyr Stephen was shed, I also was standing by. They know I was on their side and consenting unto his death and kept the raiment of them and slew him. That slew him. And he, Jesus, said unto me, Depart, for I will send thee. My calling for you is to go to Zimbabwe. I'm sorry, <laughs> go hence unto the Gentiles. Isn't it neat how the Lord says, I have a call for you, and I have a call for you, and I have a call different for you. Don't try to figure out God's call. You gotta just go with it. But he knew Jesus was not calling him to Jerusalem. Common sense. Uh, did I read the last verse? Verse It says, uh, For I will send thee far hence unto the Gentiles. I'd read it. Okay, so common sense says that he should have stayed away from Jerusalem. I mean, obviously, I mean, that's the, that's the most dangerous place for Paul, correct? Even Jesus said, Get out, go on, go on, go on. But his heart, you know, your heart will cause you to do hard things dangerous things. Go to Romans chapter 9. Hold your place here in Acts. Go to Romans chapter 9. Paul is so burdened about his people. Romans chapter 9. And if Ireland is ever going to get the gospel, it'll be because some people are burdened about your people. I'm burdened about everybody. But we better be burdened about the Irish. Look at Romans chapter 9, verse 1. I say the truth in Christ. People didn't believe this, but he says, I'm not lying. I lie not. My conscience also bearing witness with me in the Holy Ghost that I have great what? All right, so he wasn't happy all the time. He didn't come into church. He came to church often in tears and not because of, of a bill that he got in the post or because the car wouldn't start or the chariot or whatever. He was Weeping, he was in great heaviness. And what's the next two words? Continual sorrow in my heart. Why? For I could wish that I myself were damned. I could wish that I could go to hell. That I could be accursed from Christ for my brethren, for my people. My kinsmen according to the flesh. Verse 4 says, who are Israelites. He cared about people that nobody else cares about. And he couldn't, he couldn't just walk away. He believed with all his heart. And I, let me just say this for a minute. Thank God that some men, some women are always burdened about others. Thank God that nobody else may care about your family, but you're burdened about them. Amen. I may not know about people that you're burdened about, but please don't ever get hardened to the people that God burns your heart for, whether it's your sons or your daughters or your husband or your wife or your neighbors or somebody. Thank God 
that there are still some Christians who have continual sorrow in their heart about somebody they know is on their way to hell. You need to be worried about those people that are still stuck in the old church you used to go to where they never heard the gospel. And they're stuck and they're bound in their blindness. You need to be burdened about our nation. Because our nation has hook, line, and sinker bought everything the, U the EU has ever put out. And our nation needs God. We need to be burdened about it. Thank God that there are men who are burdened for the souls of people they've never met yet. And they know they need to hear to be saved. Now, Paul believed all his heart that these warnings that he's getting were not because he was about to sin, but it was because his life was in danger. And know the difference. You know what my job is as a pastor? Paul tells Timothy, he says, Timothy, preach the word, be instant, in season when it's popular and out of season when it's not popular. And then he says, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with all longsuffering. Now, what does that mean? Well, there's sometimes when I need to warn you that what you're doing is dangerous. It may not even be sin. But there are some times when I come along and I say, stop it. I'm rebuking you now. That attitude you've got, the words you're saying, the way you're treating people is wrong. That's my job. Don't get mad at me. But there were people who were warning Paul, this is dangerous. Thank God people cared about him. All right? So sometimes somebody comes along and says, don't do that. That's dangerous. Now you're going to have to decide. Is it something I've got to do? Or just something you're rebellious about and you want to do? There's a difference. So he's fellowship, and I like this. Look in verse 7. He's just, every time he's gone on his way, he's not going to be diverted. Just settle it. And uh, have you not ever had, when, uh, Brother Lee, when, uh, maybe it's different with you, but when I got saved and God called me to be a missionary, my family lost it. My dad said, there goes my son. Uh, why would you waste your life? Now, my dad was not a Christian. But my dad was actually, he wasn't mocking really me. He was worried about me. He actually said, how are you going to eat? <laughs> Done pretty good. <laughs> Where are you going to live? What, how are you going to, what, what is that? That's concern. But I wasn't called by my dad. And my dad doesn't have to approve my calling. I better know that I know that I know that God has burdened my heart and that my heart is broken and I've got to go and do it, no matter the cost. So on his way, he just fellowships with the believers. Verse 7, uh, and when he had so said, oh no, I'm in the wrong place, chapter 20, 21, 7. And when we had finished our course from Tyre, we came to uh, Ptolemas and saluted the brethren and abode with them one day. So he can't spend seven days, but he just sits down and he has fellowship with them. And uh, verse 8, And the next day we that were of Paul's company departed and came to Caesarea, and we entered into the house of Philip the Evangelist, which was one of the seven, and abode with him. Now, uh, Philip the Evangelist, he, there's, there's, there's two Philips in your Bible. One guy is Philip the Apostle. Right? But this is Philip the Evangelist. Back in Acts chapter 6, he's, he's put forth as, a, as somebody who's just a servant of the church taking care of widows. And this guy is known as Philip the what? The Evangelist. What a great word. 
a, a, an evangelist is a gospel preacher, a soul winner who wins souls and starts churches. He's not a pastor. He just loves getting people saved and teaching them enough so that they're, they're in a church and then a pastor comes and feeds that flock and protects them. And uh, he, uh, uh, he's, this is the guy that led that Ethiopian eunuch to Christ. Remember back in Acts chapter 8. So he's got, a, he's got a good title, Philip the Evangelist. Wouldn't that be a good title to have, Gavin? Gavin the Evangelist. Hmm? That, we always want to be, you know, Gavin the most popular on TikTok. And you ought to be known as, you know, I'm, I'm a, I, I win souls. That's my life. It may not be important to anybody else, but it was important to Paul. Now he has four godly daughters there in verse uh, 9. It says, and the same man had four daughters who were virgins waiting for Mr. Wright which did prophesy. Now, uh, his four daughters were women who had the gift of prophecy. They could tell the future. And, and in that day, women did prophesy, but there's something very important once you understand. They never did it in church. There are some churches that make a big deal out of women preachers and women prophetesses and stuff like this, and that's not in the Bible. I need you to go take your Bible, turn to hold your place here and go to 1 Corinthians 11. In a Bible-believing church, men do the preaching. Men handle the leadership of a Bible-believing church because that's God's way. It's not my way. If you're going to be a Bible-believer, you're going to have to just stick with God's plan. Look at the verses that are never quoted, <laughs> never referred to in the churches that have women preachers. Uh, 1 Corinthians 11 in verse 3. The Bible says, But I would have you know that the head of every man is who? All right. Wife, make sure you're not in that position. You're not in charge of your husband. The head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is the man. I wonder why that verse is not ever quoted and used. I wonder why. And the head of Christ is God. Did not Jesus Christ submit to the authority of his Father on this earth? Did he not do that? Did he even say, Lord, I want to do this, but not my will, thy will be done. He submitted to the headship of his Father as an example to the husband who would submit to the headship of Jesus Christ, as an example to the wife who would submit to the headship of the husband. Get quiet in here. He goes on in verse 4. Every man praying or prophesying, having his head covered. Now that covered meaning ignoring your authority. Dishonoreth his head. You're dishonoring. If now... When, when, when somebody, if, if a man uncovers his head, which means shaves his head, but it's a sign of rebellion, if you're doing that, you're dishonoring your authority. It goes on, verse 5. Every woman that prayeth or prophesies with her head uncovered, shaving, I'm sorry, having, uh, having her head uncovered, meaning she has no authority, she's dishonoring her authority, for that is even as one as if she was shaven, for if a woman be not covered, let her also be shorn, right? If a woman wants to have short hair and no hair, just shave it off like Sinead O'Connor. But if it be a shame for a woman to be shorn or shaven, let her be covered. For a man ought not to cover his head, for as much as he is the image and the glory of God, you don't have long hair as a man, but the woman is the glory of the man. For the man is not of the woman, but the woman is of the man. We came from Adam. Neither was the man created for the woman, but the woman for the man. The man needs a lot of help. For this cause ought the woman to have power on her head, on her authority. She should yield to his headship because of the angels. 
and not, not all angels are good. There, okay, so it goes on. I could go on and on. I just want you to see there is scripture that says these, these churches that emphasize saying, ah, yeah, we're all one in Christ. A woman can preach a man. No. The thing that a church is supposed to have is authority and order. There's no despotism, no tyrants. We're all brethren. But somebody has to be a pastor, amen? And it has to be a guy. All right? That's Bible. Take your Bible, turn to another scripture. Go to 1 Corinthians 14 now. 1 Corinthians 14, verse 34. Paul writing to a really out-of-balance church, a church that had more problems than you really want to ever experience. And Paul corrects an issue with the women in the church at Corinth. He says, let your women keep silence where? That doesn't mean that when you come into a church, you have to put duct tape on your wife's mouth. No, it just means she's not up there supposed to be preaching. Let your women keep silence in the church, for it is not permitted unto them to speak, but they are commanded to be under obedience, as also saith the law. He's going back under the Old Testament. He says, it's a consistent thing. Verse 35, and if they will learn anything, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is a shame for women to speak in the church. And he's talking about with authority, getting up and speaking, thus saith the Lord. You can prophesy, I have found my wife ten times more spiritual than I am. And there, boy, there are so many things she can see that I can't see. That's her gift. But when it comes time to speaking behind this pulpit, she's not coming. I do, amen? God put me responsible as a pastor. So when you see all these churches, every church I, ha I see now, it doesn't matter who they are, even Baptists, they have women up there preaching. That's not of God, okay? You have gifts. God gave you gifts. You have such wisdom sometimes. Men are at zero and you're up at uh, 98, 99 in abilities. Just don't overwhelm. Encourage that man. Ask him questions at home. You don't need to come to me with all your questions. I answer everybody's questions, but ask your husband. It might just encourage him to try to find the answer. So, got real quiet there. I better move on. <clears throat> now, what, I, what is the point of this thing? Why does it say these four daughters were prophesying? They're warning Paul. They're prophesying, Paul, don't do this. Don't, don't go to Jerusalem. But now a bigwig's going to get in town. Verse 10. And they meet Agabus. Go back to Acts chapter 21 and verse 10. And we tarried there many days. And there, as we tarried there, there came down from Judea a certain prophet named Agabus. So here's a guy. And when he was coming to us, he took Paul's girdle, his outer coat, and bound his own hands and feet and said, Thus saith the Holy Ghost. Uh, isn't that funny? Not just the Lord, but the Holy Ghost. There's the Trinity right there. You see that? The Holy Ghost is a person. Thus saith the Holy Ghost, So shall the Jews at Jerusalem bind the man that owneth this girdle, and shall deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. And when we had heard these things, both we and they of them, uh, they of that place besought him, begged him not to go to Jerusalem. And then Paul answered, What mean ye to, to weep and to break my heart? For I am ready not to be bound only, but also to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. His heart's right. Would you agree? Yeah. He's walking into one of the most dangerous things. I mean, wouldn't you have warned Daniel and said, Daniel, man, don't blow it. <clears throat> All you got to do is, you know they're watching you. They made a law against praying. Don't go to the window and pray. <laughs> wouldn't you say that to Daniel? 
because it's going to cost you your life, Daniel. Remember that? Daniel goes over the window, raises it up, and he gets down to his knees and he begins to pray out loud to Lord God Jehovah of Israel. And he prays towards Jerusalem and the SWAT team breaks into the house and they drag him down and they throw him into the, fire, into the uh, lion's den, don't they? But wouldn't you have warned him if you knew what was going to happen? But his heart was right, wasn't it? I don't care if I die. This is what I've got to do. So Agabus is very concerned about Paul's intention of going to Jerusalem. He loves Paul. Doesn't want him to see him hurt. And he sees Paul, what he was doing was the greatest. He's going around winning thousands of Gentiles. He is the man of the age witnessing winning Gentiles. And he couldn't bear that Paul was now about to abandon that work as far as, as, far as Agabus was concerned. You're abandoning that work, not knowing that you know, <clears throat> mm. I want to say this, and I want you to understand. I don't think you'll understand, but I'll say it anyway. <clears throat> I don't know whether Paul was supposed to go to Jerusalem or not. All I know is, I don't know all what I should do moment by moment. But I know this. Even if Paul was making a mistake going to Jerusalem, Acts, uh, sorry, Romans 8.28 says he makes everything. He works everything out for good, doesn't he? even when we don't know what to do. And Paul preaches to more Gentiles than ever through this situation. It's not the end of his life. Agabus doesn't know where it's leading. He just sees you're going into the lion's den. You're going into the fiery furnace. Paul, don't do it. It's, I, I can't see you going forward in the ministry anymore. <clears throat> and Paul's saying, no, 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 you don't understand. And this is true. Here's my statement. Don't worry about the details of the perfect will of God. Can I say this? Don't worry about the details of the perfect will of God. Worry about your heart. Make sure your heart is right. Because if your heart is right, <laughs> you can't take the gospel to the wrong address. Amen? Maybe the Lord wants you to go this way down the street and give the gospel that way, and you go that way. It doesn't matter. You're like, oh, I, don't th I think I missed the will of God. You are so dumb. If your heart's right, you can't miss the will of God. God will always just work with you. That's God knows we're but dust. Amen? Amen? So get the picture. Agabus is worried. He's concerned. And Paul says, but you don't know. I've got to do this, and that's okay. And then he uses an object lesson. As it says, he took the girl, which is a wrap around his waist, and he binds himself, and he ties himself up, and he sits down on the floor. Prophets did that in the Bible. They would do an example. They would... Um, you know, it's an object lesson. So they got the picture, and he's bound there, and everybody's looking at him going, Paul, don't do it. Don't do it. Because they could see Paul was going to be in trouble. And um, Paul will be tied up. He will be imprisoned. He will be at the mercies of the Gentiles. And the Gentiles were no friends of the Jews. But that was okay. Uh, Paul is stepping into the permissive will of God. I can't say there was the perfect will of God. I mean, if somebody, if your pastor comes along and you're getting ready to marry, here comes Gavin. Gavin says, I met Mrs. Wright, and her first name is always. What do you think, pastor? And I get to know her, and I already know Gavin, and I say, Gavin, don't do it. Don't do it. He can do it, can he? Amen. And it may not be the perfect will. And you step out and you do the permissive will of God. Amen. I'm just now, once you make that decision, I'm making you keep it. Amen? 
Amen. Do you understand how it works? So don't be going so caught up on the perfect will of God. Oh, I missed this. I missed that. Oh, I blew it. Man, just serve God. Have a right heart. Walk with the Lord. Keep humble. Keep your heart right. And God can make all things work out for good. Amen? All right. Anyway, I thought that was very practical for us. Now the Jerusalem conflict begins. <laughs> Here we go. Um, verse 14, and when he could not be persuaded, we ceased. Ladies, that's good when you're dealing with your husband. If you can't get him to change, shut up. You've tried to persuade him. You have used tears and fingernails and claws. And, and at some point, his mind's made up, back off and just say, done, I made my point. Good illustration there, too. You don't like it, but so be it. They stopped. They says, we can't change his mind. Saying, the will of the Lord be done. Let's see what the Lord's will is. Verse 15, and after those days, we took our carriages. I like that old word. It simply means what we could carry. They're carrying their bags. And we went up to Jerusalem. There went with us also certain of the disciples of Caesarea and brought with them one guy named Nason, Nason of Cyprus, an old disciple with whom we should lodge. Uh, those two, Paul has, now I want you to understand it says, verse 15, after those days, we took up our carriages. This is the Apostle Paul. I'm sorry, this, is, this is Luke, who's writing Acts, and he's with Paul. But Paul's not the only one in this group. Paul's got some Gentiles with him. Remember, he's walking into Jerusalem. Jerusalem is heavily populated by very zealous Jews. And he's bringing in some non-Jewish believers. He's bringing in Trophimus from Ephesus, Sopater from Berea. He's got Aristarchus, Secundus, Gaius, and Timothy, and Tychicus, all from Galatia. These guys are walking in like Ian Paisley into a Catholic cathedral. <laughs> wow! That's what's happening. So they quickly got a friend named Menaean, who has a house, and Menaean's sort of an introducer. He's sort of saying, these are my friends, don't kill them. <laughs> So they're going in with this guy. And um, uh, the initial greetings are good. Look at verse 17. And when we were coming to Jerusalem, the brethren received us gladly. Amen. So far, so good. Verse 18. And the day following, Paul went in with us into, uh, unto James. That's James, the Lord's stepbrother. This is not the Apostle James, because the Apostle James died in Acts 12, didn't he? They beheaded him. They were going to go after Peter. So this is, again, it's like going in, in Ireland. You know, everybody I met when I first came to Ireland was either named John or Mary. <laughs> everybody was named John or Mary. So there were a lot of Jameses and so on and so forth. Well, this is James, the Lord's half-brother. Mary had more children than just Jesus, didn't she? So she had, uh, he has a stepbrother named James, and he's the pastor of the church at Jerusalem. So they went with us unto James and also all the elders that were present. And when Paul, he had saluted them, verse 19, he declared particularly what things God had wrought among the Gentiles by his ministry. It's, it's awesome. Verse 20, when they heard it, they glorified the Lord. They praised the Lord. And then watch what happens. And they said unto him, thou seest, brother, how many thousands of... Ooh. Paul, did you notice coming in? you see how many thousands of Jews uh, which are uh, there are which believe and they are all zealous of not of Christ but of what 
So Paul's all of a sudden woken up to a real issue. Things haven't changed in Jerusalem yet. Acts chapter 15, they settle. Gentiles can get saved. It's a done deal. But as far as the Jews are concerned, they're still not part of the same body. They're still a bit racist, would you say? They were still zealous of the law. Verse 21, and they are informed of thee that thou teachest all Jews, which are among the Gentiles, to forsake Moses. <gasps> There's accusations against you, Paul, saying that they ought not to circumcise their children, neither to walk after the customs. This was hard. The initial greeting is good so far. He's boasting and bragging about all the Gentiles, all the Irish, all the Tennesseans and Alabamans, how all the Carrymen and Claire, how all, everybody was getting saved. And what does James talk about? Ah, but look at the Jews. Look at our people. Kind of a bit of conflict there. You'd think that Gentiles, pagans, people who were way out in the extreme, who'd never heard about God, you'd think they'd be rejoicing that these were getting saved and on their way to heaven. They got their sins washed away. They're brethren. But James and most of the believers in Jerusalem were still hung up on the Old Testament law still. And they were obsessed with their superiority above the Gentiles. These Jews were believers in Jesus as Savior, but they were still living by the, by the law. And they turned it around and they made some accusations. And they said, Paul, everybody says you've forsaken Moses. You can't do that, Paul. You've abandoned Exodus and Deuteronomy. You don't want Jews to be Jews anymore. You don't want them to circumcise their children. You don't want them to do the Jewish customs. And to the Jews, this was the worst kind of sin. It's worse than adultery. It was worse than murder. <gasps> to tell a Jew to not be a Jew anymore. Paul, people are going to hear that you're in town. <laughs> Look there, uh, verse 20, verse 21, uh, sorry, verse uh, 22. What is it therefore? The multitude must needs come together, for they will hear that thou art come. So he has a suggestion. Mm -hmm. Verse 23. Do therefore this that we say unto thee. We have four men which have a vow on them, them take and purify thyself with them. Purify? That's a Jewish concept, all right? You need to purify yourself with them and be at charges with them, whatever it costs, that they may shave their heads, Jewish custom, and all may know that those things, whereof they were informed concerning thee, are nothing, that you're still a good little Jew, but that thou thyself also walketh orderly and keepest the law still, so to speak. Verse 25 is touching the Gentiles, oh, which believe we have written and concluded that they observe no such thing. We don't, we're not asking the Gentiles to become Jews. Save only that they keep themselves from things offered to idols. Don't worship idols or from blood. Don't drink blood as worship and stay away from strangled things to keep healthy and stay away from fornication. So James says, Prove to the Jews you're still a good law-abiding Jew, Jew. You know, um, this puts Paul in his first bind, doesn't he? He's come all the way home. He's come to Jerusalem. He's in church, and the pastor says, 
Paul, I know you've been witnessing to, Jew, to Gentiles, and you've been focusing on that. I want you now to act like a good Jew. And what's Paul going to do? Man. Paul attempts to win the Jews by doing how he's lived his life, by being a Jew. I'll show you where this comes from in a moment. Verse 23, let's read this again. 21, 23. Do this, therefore, that we say unto thee, we have four men which have a vow on them. Them take and purify themselves with them and be at charges with them that they may shave their heads. Aren't you glad that that's not a New Testament practice? Imagine pastor or me coming up to somebody and says, it's your time to shave your head. <laughs> what? All may know these things whereof they were informed concerning thee, that they are nothing, but that thou thyself also walkest orderly and keepest the law. Wow. 26. Then Paul took the men, and the next day, purifying himself with them, entered into the temple to signify the accomplishment of the days of purification until that an offering should be offered for every one of them. Now, Paul, by birth, was a Jew, undeniable, by nationality. But he was not a Jew by religion or by faith anymore. He is now neither Jew and he is neither Gentile. What is he? He is Christian. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creature on the block. <laughs> Somebody says, are you Protestant or Catholic? I'm neither. I'm born again. <laughs> Amen. You see, the answer is very different. Paul is being forced in order to have a voice, in order to earn the right to speak to the Jews, he has to humble himself, go through some ceremonies, so that in his heart of hearts, he can get an audience. But it ain't going to work. Just, I just want you to see something. Go to Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3, verse 26. And don't be too hard on the, the Jews in Jerusalem. I mean, you want to. Like, come on, guys, aren't you, haven't you grown up yet? But they hadn't. It is really hard. It, it, let me ask you this. Those of you who are saved out of Catholicism, it's really hard shaking off all that baggage. It takes years sometimes. I mean, I had a woman who got saved years ago uh, in New Jersey. She got saved in every church service. You know what she would do when she came to the church? She would cross herself. <laughs> it, you, you, didn't want, didn't, you didn't want to go up to her and say, stop, 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 stop. Stop that. No, no, no. She just hadn't learned yet. There's baggage you bring into Christianity. You don't know these things. Paul knew that, sorry, you don't, there's no need for anybody to live up to the law. There's no need for some dumb dog Gentile to be a good Jew. But Paul here is burdened about those Jews, and he says, all right, I'll bite my lip. How many ever been invited to a christening or to a wedding? Or to a funeral, and it's in a Catholic church, or it's in a Hindu. You, know, you go, and you bite your lip. You go, oh, I'm here because it's family, or this, or whatever. That's Paul. He's like, you can't just say, oh, that's an abomination. Of course it's an abomination. But you're there so that you can actually sit down with somebody and still give them the gospel. Watch this, Galatians. <clears throat> Paul knew this, verse 26, 326. Paul tells the Galatians, he says, Ye are all the children of God, not by nationality, you're just as good as the Jews by faith in Christ Jesus now. For as many of you as we've been baptized into, not water, but into salvation, into Christ, you have put on Christ. You haven't put on 
ceremonies and religions and traditions. You've put on the life of Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither bond, <clears throat> we'd say slave or free. There is neither male nor female, for you're all one type of person in Christ Jesus now. <laughs> and if you be Christ's, then are ye Abraham's, you are as Abraham's seed yourself and your heirs according to the promise, just like the Jews. That was what Paul preached everywhere. So Paul is, is actually, he has developed, hello, a, a new way of living. Go to 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 9. 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 19. 1 Corinthians 9, 19. And I wish to God you would read this and let it stab you in the heart and, and, and compel you to quit standing in such arrogant judgmentalism of everybody who's doing things wrong and just say, I'm going to make sure I sacrifice my pride and I do what I can do no matter what it costs for someone else watch this first corinthians chapter 9 and verse 19 for though i be free from all men and paul was paul was not any man's slave yet have i made myself servant unto how many wow jew and gentile i've made myself servant unto all yea uh um uh that i might gain the more Verse 20, and unto the Jews, I became as a what? There he is. He did the ceremony. He shaved his head. He allowed them to offer sacrifice, even though there are no more sacrifices for sin. Amen? He allowed them to do that. <clears throat> I lose my place all the time. Where am I? Verse 19 and 20, okay. I, uh, to the Jews, I became as a Jew that I might gain the Jews. To them that are under the law, I put myself as under the law, as under. I'm not under the law, but I went under it for a little while. Why? That I might gain them that are under the law. To them that are without the law, now I'm dealing with people who are lawless, <clears throat> as without the law, but being not without the law to God. I never live lawlessly, but I don't hold the law over them. I'm under the law to Christ, that I might gain them that are without law. To the weak, hey, you ever going to the hospital? Do not show off and, and, and show how healthy you are to somebody who's weak and infirm and in the hospital. To the weak, what should you be? Just as weak. Sit with them and humble yourself and just feel what they feel. Paul says, to the weak became I as weak, that I might gain the weak. I, may, I am made, I am fashioned, I made all things to all men that by all means, what? I might save some. And I do this for the gospel's sake that I might be partaker thereof with you. That was Paul's way of life that he has developed and it got him in a bind. It got him to where, I mean, if I were him, I would, I mean, I can read the whole book I've seen start to finish. I've got the benefit of hindsight. And I could look at Paul and say, Paul, I wouldn't have done that, but I'm not there. And Paul, what he's doing, I have to sit back in awe and go, his heart's right. And he's doing this for those Jews. Um, he goes through a Jewish mm, purification ceremony, folks. These four men, just like Paul, had been eating with Gentiles. <gasps> he must be defiled. They probably sneezed on him. He's eating food touched by Gentiles. The Jews had such 
a separation issue with everybody that was not a Jew. And so here are these five guys now that have been with Gentiles. They need to purify themselves. <sighs> However, it results in a riot of <laughs> verse 27. 21 um, and 27. And when the seven days were almost ended, I love that word almost because it's as if so far so good, so far so good, so far so good. Everything's gone fine. He's going through this ceremony. And the Jews which were in Asia, when they saw him in the temple, they stirred up all the people and they laid hands on him. They grabbed him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man that teacheth all men everywhere against the people, against the Jewish people, and against the law, and against this place. And further, he hath brought Greeks also into this temple and hath polluted this holy place. Can you imagine what's happening now? They're stirring up all the people thinking that Paul's in there defiling the, the temple just by his very presence in there, bringing in Gentiles. Verse 29, For they had seen before with him in the city a guy named Trophimus, an Ephesian, whom they supposed that Paul had brought with him in the temple, and Paul didn't. And verse 30, And all the city was moved. The word is agitated, upset. And the people ran together, and they took Paul. They drew him out of the temple, and forthwith the doors were shut. Everything was going just fine that entire week. He's almost through the hard part. He's about to finish up and then be able to be accepted by everybody, be able to sit down and have coffee and just talk to everybody, because they'd all say, you're just like us, and he could give them the gospel. And then everything went wrong. Verse 31, I better finish this up. And as they went, look who saves him. Verse 31, as they went about to kill him, tidings came unto the chief captain of the band, and all Jerusalem, <laughs> that all Jerusalem was in uproar again. The Romans hated Jerusalem because there's always a religious riot, and they always had to come in. That's why they allowed Jesus to die. Pilate said, there's a mob out there saying, crucify him, crucify him. And Pilate said, we got to stop this riot. Yeah, go ahead. He's yours. And he let a righteous, a godly, a, 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 an innocent man die because he didn't want a riot on his hands. That's how they looked at things. And there they were at a riot again. And um, uh, these Romans, it, it, it says this, verse uh, 32, and immediately who immediately took soldiers and centurions, ran down unto them, and when they saw the chief captain, the, the, the mob, and the soldiers, they left beating of Paul. <laughs> you got to laugh. I mean, there's this pile of men who are just kicking and beating Paul to death. And then come those Roman soldiers with their swords out and their shields out, and they move in and they clear out all of those people, and all of a sudden they stop beating Paul. Who sent that army in there? Paul had no strength. The Christians weren't going to intervene. They'd be dead too. And God sent in those Roman soldiers. I mean, God will take care of you. Amen. In come these soldiers. And they quit beating Paul. Verse 33. Then the chief captain came near. They took him and commanded him, Paul, to be bound. Ah, oh, here he is bound again. He's getting bound again to be bound with two chains, only these are physical, and demanded who he was and what he had done. What have you done? 
And some cried one thing, some cried out another among the multitude. And when he, when he the centurion, could not know the certainty of, because of the tumult, he commanded him to be carried into the castle. Get this idea. He's going to be airlifted out of that situation because the men are furious. They are grabbing at him. So the soldiers pick up Paul and hold him above the crowd <clears throat> like all the rock stars want to be. Carried into the castle, verse 35, and when he came unto the stairs, so it was that he was born, carried to the soldiers for the violence of the people. And the for the multitude of the people followed after, saying, Away with him, kill him, get rid of him. Now, we're going to stop there. But in verse 40, I want you to see something. Look down to verse 40. We'll pick it up next week. And when he had given him license, when the centurion gave Paul the opportunity, Paul, now, guess who is right in front of him? The entire city of Jerusalem is there. Paul is set down at the top of a stairway. There is a, 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 a building behind him that projects his voice. He is now, even though he's in trouble, even though his life, he's probably bruised and bleeding, he now has been given the greatest opportunity he always wanted to preach to the entire city of Jerusalem. I want you to understand, it doesn't work out like you and I would have worked it out, amen? That's not how I want to go soul winning. That's not how you want to start a church in Zimbabwe, amen? I don't care if it's Livingston or Living Dead. I am not thinking this is how I want to do it. But when you find yourself in conflict, in trouble, and you think this is not working right, you have no idea where you will be if you just stay faithful. Four thoughts or five thoughts. Number one, Paul knew he should not go to Jerusalem. Common sense told him, stay away from Jerusalem. Stay away from Zimbabwe. Don't go there. It could end up killing you. But his heart, aren't you glad, was so burdened for his people. It's like our heart should be. And I'm telling you, by way of conclusion, this is the invitation, folks. Do not let your heart get so hard that you're not burdened about anybody people don't matter to you anymore. Paul believed with all his heart that the warnings were to protect his life. He's not sinning. He's not doing something sinful. Oh, that men would not fear danger to their life, but instead would go and preach once again the priceless truths of the gospel to a desperately lost people. Whether people understand why you're doing it or what it will cost you, oh, that men would say, I've got to, I've got to. Folks, conflicts are going to happen. Trouble is going to happen in the will of God. Disasters. And yet in the middle of that disaster, Paul was given the greatest opportunity to preach to the people he was burdened about. <laughs> I mean, you couldn't have asked for a better moment. And God orchestrated it, didn't he? Would you and I be willing to get into trouble with our family? Maybe again and again and again. Would you and I be willing to get into trouble with our family, with our school, with our neighbors, with our co-workers, just so that we could give them the gospel one more time? That is New Testament Christianity. That is our example. God's not showing us this to embarrass Paul or for us to look down on Paul, for us to find fault with Paul. It's to, ex to let us realize 
I don't have to worry about the perfect details. I just have to have my heart right so that I'm willing to do whatever it takes for someone else. What will you risk for others? What will you risk? If there was a fire, would you not risk your life to bring somebody out of that fire? Well, there is a real fire, and it is eternal. And there are people who do not know how to be saved. They don't know what it is to be born again. You're their key. But it takes a burden. I can't force you to go. Your wife may kick you out the door, but it's not going to get you to go soul winning. God has to burden your heart. And I, you've got to say with me, I must go. I must, no matter the cost. And what about your soul? Ladies, gentlemen, if you're not saved, do you really want to stay the way you are? Are you really happy the way you are? Is your soul so full of joy and happiness? Or are you be honest and say it is dark and empty and lost without God and without hope? You need Jesus Christ. What about you? I came for you. If you were the one person that I spent the last 28 years preaching to, and if you got saved today, it's worth it all. Because that's why I came, why I have been in trouble and situations and why I keep going for one soul. And if you're not saved, why don't you be that soul that says, Jesus sent some nut from Texas here, some nut from Tennessee to Zimbabwe for sinners. The Bible says if you're thirsty, you can come. If you're tired, you can come. Let Jesus save you today. Say, how do I get saved? You bow your head and you close your eyes. You cry out to him as best as you can. There's no perfect prayer. There's no prayer even. It's just heart belief of, I need you. I've tried everything else. I'm tired of my life leading nowhere. I understand you want to save sinners, and here's one. Just save a wretch like me. Those are my words. What are yours? What could you say? What could you believe? Would you say it this today? Stand with me and let's bow in prayer. <clears throat> I think of, Lord, what you risked for the whole world. You came into the world, world made by you, and yet the world didn't know you, and they rejected you, they mocked you, spit upon you, beat you, whipped you to where you were unrecognizable. And then that crowd, that religious, zealous, and politically motivated crowd cried out, crucify the Son of God. And they did. And they left you there to die. And it humbles me to think why you did that. And then I remember it's because of me. It's for every soul in this room, every soul in this city, every living, breathing soul in this world. You risked everything for us. So when you got out of that grave and you asked people to follow you, it was not so that we could live superior, could live in our ivory palace. It was so that we could go into the world and ourselves risk everything. For someone, even for people we don't know and would never care about, what are we willing to do? We're supposed to do something. Lord, don't let us be settled or comfortable ever again until we have done something 
opened somebody's eyes, said something, handed out a gospel tract, done something for someone every day. And there's somebody in this room who's not saved. God, it's their day. They need to come talk to me. If they need to, or they just need to talk to you, please let them cry out to get saved today as we sing. In Jesus' name, amen. Grab your hymnal.